Welcome to Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt, here as always with my co-host Octavia Bright. Hello, Octavia. How are you? Hi, Carrie. I'm okay. I'm um, I'm still waiting for a lot of things, I feel like. I'm still waiting for my mum to come back from hospital. Um, and while she's there, I'm staying at her house, which has some lovely things about it. It's got a really nice big garden and the added bonus of my cat Lupo, who you know. I do know Lupo very well. I you love do. Lupo. He is great. He's being alternately adorable and really thuggish, as is his want. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this morning he brought us a little bird, which was oh no. a bit intense. But you know, all you, you have to just say thank you. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, I'm enjoying being in a different part of the city. Although I have to say it's quite intense being here with the old grief because I'm surrounded by all my dad's things, which is kind of wonderful and also incredibly intense. So I would say I'm in a state of ambivalence, I think. But I think I'm I think I'm gonna ride this ambivalent state for a little while longer. <laughs> How about you? Yeah, ambivalence is a good word to describe this period. It feels so we're recording this on the day that pubs and restaurants have opened up and also bookshops. Yay! Yay! Go support your local bookshop. But I don't know about you, but I have not made any plans to actually go to any of these places. And I do want to, but I feel a little bit weird about it. And my life hasn't really changed. I don't know. I I feel really strange about this time right now. Um, And I'm not quite sure how to embrace my life at the moment. I completely know what you mean. And I mean, I kind of can't because I'm still having to essentially shield, not completely, but almost until my mom gets back from hospital and then I'm going to be caring for her for a bit. So it's all delayed for me anyway. And actually, that's okay. Yeah. (laughs) Because I do feel anxious. I'm longing to see everyone and, and go and do some fun things. But if, yeah, it's weird. It's going to be an adjustment for us all. It is. It is, but I'm hoping it will be a pretty quick adjustment. I mean, who knows? I think um, it will. I think yeah. it's going to be a dipping your toe in and then suddenly you'll be like, oh, this is great. Just diving, doing yeah. a cannonball. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I am very excited because today we're going to be talking to the author Leonie Ross about her absorbing and sensuous novel, This One Sky Day. Set over the course of one day on the fictional Caribbean island of Popisho, where everyone is born with a certain magical gift or cores, this is the story about many things, but mainly of two lovers trying to find their way back to each other. As you may have guessed from that description, this One Sky Day can be described as a work of magical realism. And so we thought that we would talk about this genre, its history, its potential for both playfulness and subversion and why some people including me at times on the show I will admit are still so (laughs) snobby about it but first Octavia do you want to tell our listeners a little bit about Leonie I sure do. Leonie Ross was born in England and grew up in Jamaica. Her first novel, All the Blood is Red, was long listed for the Orange Prize and her second novel, Orange Laughter, was chosen as a BBC Radio 4 Women's Hour watershed fiction favourite. Her short fiction has been widely anthologised and her first short story collection for 2017, Come, Let Us Sing Anyway, was nominated for the Edge Hill Short Story Prize and the Jalak Prize. Ross has taught creative writing for 20 years. She is editor of the first Black British anthology of speculative fiction due out in 2022 with People Tree Press, which is very exciting. Um, She lives in London, but she intends to retire near water. 
Also, before we get into the show, as a reminder, our Patreon is now live. We've started with a single membership level of £5 a month, which will give our patrons access to an exclusive extra show each month. And we've already put our first one up. So if you become a patron now, you will get access to that immediately. And it was an expanded discussion of the concept of vulnerability. This will help pay for the work that goes into all of these shows and get you even more super exclusive literary friction. You can find us at patreon.com forward slash lit friction. Please do. Please do. We love our patrons. Not any more than other people, but yes, we do. <laughs> God, Carrie. Quick. I love all my children equally. Okay, That's right. for now, <laughs> stay tuned for our interview with Leone, a more general discussion of the literature of magical realism, and finally, our usual book recommendations. So direct your third ears to us for the next hour or so of Literary Friction. I really like that. Did you get that? I got it and I liked it. Okay, cool. Leonie Ross, thank you so much for coming on Literary Friction. Thank you for inviting me. So we've asked you to start with a reading from This One Sky Day. Do you mind setting it up for us? Sure. I'm actually reading from the probably the last third of the novel, which is slightly unusual, but I think that that's going to work. All you really need to understand this excerpt is that we are speaking from the point of view of a, one of our main characters, Anise. Anise, like everybody in this uh, novel, has a magic power, which is known as a course, and hers is that she is a healer. She also diagnoses people's illnesses by touching them. And she has had four pregnancies that have ended in um, miscarriage or in the death of her children. And she has never worked out what's going on with her own body. At a certain point in this book, and most reviews have now given this fact away, so I can too, um, women's vulvas, also known as pumpums, um, come free from their bodies. And this scene talks about Anissa's experience with her own. Because she couldn't think of anything else to do, Anise sat down on the shiny whorehouse floor, put her pumpum on the pallet and looked at it, hard, hard. Still brown and warm and nice. Hesitantly, she used one finger to stroke the very top of the mons, surprised at its fatty, downy fullness, unfamiliar despite a life of touching herself. She used to masturbate at sleepovers at Bonamy's house, right after her cousin fell asleep. The idea of doing it at home was embarrassing. One night, after her aunt came in to out the lamp, she and Bonamy had confessed to each other. She couldn't remember who'd had the courage first. You do it? Yes. Me too. And she'd felt reassuringly normal. But obviously she wasn't normal. There was a problem somewhere. She just had to look as close as she could bear. Her vulva was surprisingly hot to the touch and damp, like a piece of aromatic sod. She pressed lightly around the outer labia and above the pubic mound, checking for tears or damage. It was strange to touch a piece of her body so intimately yet feel nothing at all. She could trace pubic bones through the skin they met just there, part of the hip girdle. She moved her hips carefully. The painlessness was so odd, given that bones were broken. Labia parted as she probed, giving her a pleasurable shock at the colour of her insides. Red or pink, she couldn't decide. Below that, her anus, a twinkling brown-pink thing itself, 
She drew back, amused at her own reservations, then leaned forward again. It was just part of a body. She smoothed the curly dark hair trickling down and around the aperture, letting her embarrassment die away. She smelled fine, just fine. She took a deep breath and used the first two fingers of both hands to part the outer lips so she could study the collar more closely. The hood of her plump clitoris peeled back with the movement, an infinitesimal motion that made her jump. She bent closer, fascinated. A few years before she died, Ingrid, her best friend, said people in foreign had finally worked out that the clitoris was subterranean. Anise rubbed her finger just above the hood, feeling for the rubbery, movable rod under the skin. It reminded her of chicken cartilage, the shaft connected to the bone by a suspensory ligament. Our Obio women have known for centuries, Ingrid said. Imagine a wishbone, and think of bulbs that fill with hot blood, and muscle pulled tight across all of it, building tension and spasming like the stars. This is a gift only for women, only for pleasure. Anise imagined the entirety of the clitoris, hot red flesh under the skin, thrumming and bubbling. She spread her labia further, both sets of lips protecting the vestibule, the delicate area between them. She liked that word for this part of the body. A chamber, a channel opening into another place, a waiting room, vestibule. It was also the name for the central cavity of the inner ear and for the space between the cheeks and the teeth. There was a vestibule inside the heart. Beyond that, a tiny winding road. She imagined herself grooved, her fingers sliding along soft patterns carved inside her by the gods and time. She almost expected a croaking lizard to poke its head out of her vagina. There she peeked. Fingertips dampened, she could see the remains of her hymen, tiny pieces of crinkled tissue, the corona. The wet walls wrapped around her careful exploring fingers, she giggled. She'd never considered how truly magical this flesh was, producing liquid it tickled. She pushed her fingers deeper. There was a small silver crackle as her cores exerted itself, inspired perhaps by her fingers' location. The more aroused you were, the further the mouth of the womb pulled back. Tell the man to go slow or you're not lying down with him. She charged money to teach women this, to teach them holy no's. Daughters leaking through here and out of her, she swallowed spittle. Keep on, keep on. She couldn't see or feel any evidence of disease, no bruising or infection, nothing bent or broken, none of the noises or smells she could feel on other people, no cancer, no sexually transmitted disease, nothing airborne or feverish. There was nothing wrong with her, nothing to tell her why they died. It was just so. Thank you so much. And I'm so glad that you chose that excerpt <laughs> to read. <laughs> I, why? Well, first of all, I, I love that idea of women's vulvas falling out and what happens when that happens to, to every woman on the island, but mm. also this idea of a woman really looking at her vagina and, and mm. thinking about it and, and how almost radical that scene is. Maybe you could just start by talking about 
why you wanted this this moment to happen in the book and what you wanted to explore? I mean, in some ways that would suggest that this inclusion of this idea was more intentional than than it than it was. The actual falling of the vulvas, because the, the whole section falls out, in my mind, it's a bit like, um, you know, the, when you have a, a computer or a laptop and it's got a, um, the, the, back, the back side of it can come out the, and falls out. So the whole section comes away and there's no blood and there's, you know, there's breaking, of course, but there's no blood. So this moment occurred to me just for a niece. It actually did start with a niece. She was walking through a, um, a whorehouse being very annoyed about the fact that her husband's not having sex with her anymore. And I was free writing and her, <laughs> her vulva fell off. And I thought, oh, <laughs> that's fun. <laughs> that's good. A lot of this work came from that kind of moment, that kind of trusting myself and allowing my own kind of very well-established kind of sense of the ridiculous to take over. And I, so I didn't know what it meant in that moment. I just thought, oh, that's interesting. Let's go on. You know, what would one do? So there's a scene in which she freaks out and, you know, obviously tries to put it back and tries to get her head around it and has a little look at it then. This is this that I've just read is the longer look that she took. It's only later I thought, right, uh, generally within this book, there is something happening. There is something brewing that I won't give away. But let's just say that the very earth that they live on is unhappy. And very strange things happen in this land of Poppy Show. It's a it's an archipelago that's completely made up, of course, and, and all of its people, as we said, are magical. And so something strange is happening to the very earth underneath their feet. And this business of all of the women's underneath, as they call them, falling off. I thought, what would then happen not only to us individually as women, also to the people around us, the men and, and who care for us, and the society as a whole? if this part of our bodies came free? What relationship would we then have with them? Some of the women in this book don't want them back. Others develop a new appreciation of them. And I'd quite like all the women of the world to have a little think about what they would do if their vulva came free. For me, this is, and one of the reasons I chose this section to share with your listeners and with you, is because for me, this can allow a start of a conversation about what magic realism is. So many of the details in that section, of course, are biologically true. You know, the fact that we become wet when we tickle ourselves. Now, isn't that fascinating? If you really sit down and think about it, <laughs> I think that's really pleasing. I remember being quite young when I found out, I had a very good sex education from my parents. And when I found out, you know, one of the, another piece of information about the way that the body works, which is that your, you know, that the mouth of the womb pulls back, the more aroused you get. This made perfect sense to me. Of course it did, right? Because if you know, if you're heterosexual, you're gonna, or you're going to put something inside there, well, then sure, sh you know, shunting back towards your body helps, right? <laughs> yeah. And so I thought, but these are just ordinary, normal things our body does. But I think they're magical. And one of the ideas around magic realism, of course, is that you include both the magical in the ordinary, but also you flip it and you become conscious of what is magical about the mundane. Absolutely. And what could be a better kind of vessel for that in some ways than the female body oh, and especially absolutely. the female genitalia right because it's a part of the human anatomy that has so many myths and you know cultural myths not magical myths <laughs> spun about it mm. and there's so much Agreed. misinformation and it's you know hiding the truths about this part of the body has been a way of controlling women in different cultures for generations and centuries right so I think absolutely that's why true. There's something that feels 
revelatory about seeing it on the page in such kind of, you go there with such clarity and tenderness at the same time, which is Mm -hmm. that for me was like, was a, a beautiful strength in those passages. But I also, I mean, I want to come back to what you were saying about magical realism, because there's so much there. But before we do, I just want to ask you about the bodies in this book, because for me, the way you write about bodies, I mean, this is a really corporeal book in so many ways. Food is really a big part of it. Sex is a really big part of it, but also just physicality. And I loved the way you populate your book with bodies of all different shapes and sizes and ages and stages. It felt really, it made me realize how few writers do it and how much we need it and how Mm. starved actually I felt of characters, particularly women who appreciate their softness and enjoy their bellies and their bottoms. And I wanted to ask you if that was a, a conscious choice or something that just evolved as you went. That one was very conscious. Lots of things evolved as I went because I also, this book was a long time coming. It took 15 years to get out of me. Lots of things changed over the time. Lots of bits of it were, you know, fell away like boom booms <laughs> and, <laughs> and weren't used. But in terms of the bodies, that became purposeful because across the 15 years that this took me to write, I think I became conscious because I was also publishing short fiction at the same time. And I became conscious that for a long time, certainly in my first two novels, I've been writing all of these kinds of socially Western, socially acceptably beautiful women. I am a big woman. I'm beautiful. We all are in our different ways. And I think as I've gotten older, I began to realize the simplest, but one of the most important things, which is this idea of beauty is rubbish. It's rubbish. It does us no favors, which is not to say that I don't think we shouldn't walk down the street and strut and feel nice, right? That's a different thing, perhaps. Maybe that's a more valuable thing that is about just loving the skin we're in. But this was purposeful. So in this book, there are women, as you say, of all kinds of shapes, all kinds of sizes. There are thin women and small women, fat women and tall women, whatever fat means. I don't know. These, you know, these phrases are so... Uh, we, we take them for granted, you know, we assume that they are appropriate, but I, I don't know what they mean anymore if you really start to pull them apart. There's a beauty contest in this book. Okay, so I grew up in Jamaica. Jamaicans love beauty contests, right? Really? And I realized when I came back, because I was born in England, but when I came back as a, as a young adult, I remember one year getting really excited because uh, Miss World or Miss Universe, one of the two was coming on, and I needed to find somewhere that it was being shown. And it wasn't being shown anywhere on UK TV because it had fallen out of favor even then, right? And I was getting really annoyed because, you see, Miss Jamaica scores highly every year, right? <laughs> and we've won it like five times. I was really running around. With my feminist credentials, I thought entirely intact, but still wanting to watch Miss World or whatever it was. With my girlfriends here going, why would you want to watch that? They're parading around, They're, you know, like chunks of meat. I'm going... Yes, but they're sexy and we could win. So I don't get it. So there's this whole <laughs> cultural difference around beauty contests and national pride, right, that most Jamaicans um, can, can relate to. Uh, so there's a beauty contest in this book. And I wanted to slightly pull that apart and play around with it. So not only is it an appreciation of beauty, it really is an appreciation of bodies across the board. So again, there were all kinds of bodies and all kinds of shapes and shades of skin as well. And all of them are beautiful because all of them are working 
you know, and all of them are present. And also there's an emphasis in this particular beauty contest on the ability to debate as well. People in Poppy Show are very, very quick and they, they appreciate, not unlike Jamaicans, they appreciate language and that kind of vivacity that comes with making arguments really quickly. So I kind of pulled apart the beauty contest and made it, I think, a little bit more woman friendly, but it's still a beauty contest. Yeah. And actually that what you're talking about in terms of populating the book with all different kinds of bodies and the way the beauty contest works gets back to this idea of what you're talking about in terms of magical realism, because, of course, you know, we live in a world populated by all different kinds of beautiful bodies and we live in a world with beauty contests. But what you do in this book is is play around with that. Um, It feels really playful. And do you think magical realism is is a very playful genre or do you think that is the context in which you yourself come to it i think it's two things i think it's playful and i think it's political and then yes i think the rest is of course to the taste of the writer i mean i think one of the things the simplest example i can come up with when i'm trying to discuss uh, magical realism particularly with students because I've, i've been a teacher is it's all in the reaction So if, for example, a mother took her small child to the park for an ice cream and then they began to walk back through the park arguing and the child is holding the ice cream and the ice cream begins to melt and then reform and melt and kind of go up and down the child's wrist. In magical realism, the mother would just see this and she would perhaps think about what it told her about how her child was feeling in this moment. But if the mother instead jumped up freaked out, tried to find a journalist, tried to find a scientist, tried to find anyone to work out why the ice cream was behaving in this magical way, then what we have is a very bad American blockbuster. And so <laughs> and, and so these things are completely different. So it's all in the reaction. It is magical realism allows for magic to arrive and to illuminate, to educate, to emphasize, to underline, and to do a kind of curious contrasting thing as well. When I first started writing, I wrote a lot of realism. And I was brought up in a very political household. And I think I thought at the time, I, and I still think, that I had a lot to say about serious issues, race, gender, you know, power structures. And then I realized at a certain point after writing two novels pretty in, in pretty quick succession, it wouldn't be true to say I wasn't having any fun. But I wasn't having any fun. (laughs) And I began to ask myself, who are you at heart with this writing thing? What inspired you when you were a child? And what amused me as a child was Alice going down that rabbit hole. And what amused me was James finding the peach that grew huge in his backyard and then getting on it and, you know, flying away on it. And it is that moment when we shift from the ordinary to the extraordinary brings me great delight. And But I also began to realize that a curious thing happens when you allow magic to illuminate the world. You actually can go back to those very serious subjects and have another talk about them. Hence, of course, things like pum pum falling. We all laugh. We feel a little embarrassed. And then we actually ask ourselves, what would I do if faced with my own labia? And so it allows you to move from the silly to the serious quite quickly and back again. Also, just what you were describing about how it's so much to do with the reaction. It's such an accepting genre. And I think that is where so much of its potential lies in that 
as you described in the example of the mother with the child and the ice cream, like she doesn't react, she accepts and she allows it to become the site of maybe a philosophical inquiry or essentially the story doesn't get bogged down by keeping its roots very firmly in in the kind of real world and things about the real world that can be quite boring. It allows this much more internal relationship to the bigger questions. Um, And I found the way that you treat addiction in this novel was particularly compelling Mm. because I recognized it so profoundly and in, you know, um, this this particular character, Xavier Redshoes, has an addiction to moth. And I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about why you wanted to explore addiction here and why moth came to you as the way to kind of do it and tell our listeners a little bit about that construct. I'm afraid, again, I have no absolute answers for you. The idea of moth, it's just, okay. So, so much of this novel came out of a period of being very unsure. I had terrible writer's block. I hate that phrase, but it'll do. I had terrible writer's block for a very long time after my first two novels. I really became quite unsure about my abilities and and who I was on the page. And so I ended up doing a lot of stream of consciousness writing that ended up probably in a mountain of about between 400 and 500,000 words. Just of musing, just of allowing things to come to me. Um, the construct of the moth rather than the butterfly. Oi, I don't know. A shrink could tell you. I like moths. <laughs> In Jamaica, people are quite afraid of moths. If a moth arrives, our moths are quite big. If a moth arrives, it's kind of, some people feel like it's the spirit of a dead person. And so people kind of look at, at moths with great suspicion. And it is my tendency to be on the side of, of the underdog. In this case, I suppose the under moth. I just liked that idea. The idea of someone also eating a live creature, because in this book, butterflies are also, you don't get addicted to butterflies. They're a bit like alcohol. Moths are a bit like heroin. As for the addiction, frankly, it's something that has intrigued me and challenged me all my life. I have, really, it's probably, it's out in the public, so it's no big deal to say it. I've had an eating disorder for most most of my life since childhood. And I've also had friends who have been addicted to alcohol and various other substances. And that hunger for it, you know, that counting the moments until you can have it, that attempting to soothe the self with external objects or or things to put in your mouth or things to put in your arm. um, These are familiar impulses to me. I'm not saying I've been surrounded by addicts all my life, even though that would be fine, but certainly I know those impulses, I understand them. And so I wanted to give them to to Xavier, this this primary character, but I didn't really want to write about eating disorders on the nose. That was too close, perhaps even too painful. So here we have moths. I loved it. And I I mean, I'm a person who's been in recovery almost eight years. Mm. And when I read stories of addiction, I I have a personal investment in them for that Mm -hmm. reason. And I rarely see it treated so honestly. And I think that's what I responded to because, you know, again, because your your novel is so imbued with bodily experience and the way that he could always feel it when it was in his pocket and it mm. was always at the edge of his vision. And I loved it. And I thought it was, I thought it was a really brilliant way to treat it through the lens it's of It's the mundanity of it in, in yeah. its own way, you know? Addictions, addictions kind of high points are always looked at in our culture, in our film, in our books, you know, the, you know, the big overdose or the, 
you know, the, the, this drama that, of course, could be shot because it's visual. But not enough people, I find, talk about just the the heavy weight of wanting, you know, the attempt yeah. to not do it again, the promises that you make to yourself, um, the things that you hope you have learned, the patience of friends over years. You know, all of these things are not, don't necessarily track very well. They're not necessarily interesting to write about because they are so repetitive. And yet they are the fabric of, of an addict's everyday life or an addict. I, I think about this as people who literally are trying to soothe themselves. And, you know, we soothe ourselves in all kinds of ways. And that's another one of the ideas that I hope comes across in this novel. It's not just the addicts in big capital letters. It's all of us who are trying to compensate for the pains of life. It's people who, you know, always need to have a man or a woman, always need to be coupled up and yet perhaps would find it difficult to look upon a heroin addict, to say that a heroin addict is lesser than them, and yet they cannot be alone. And not understanding that actually the root of both of those impulses are probably the same. They are compensatory. They're about pain, you know. Mm. I think we're all just trying to get on, you know. We're all just trying to do our best in this life. And uh, we sometimes choose behaviours that are not helpful to us yeah it's it's so human this novel mm. that's what I kept coming back to and people get confused about magical realism don't they mm. in terms of what it's able to offer in terms of humanity and I admit that sometimes I you know I have expressed hesitancy about the genre of of magical realism before mm. on the show which I I felt kind of chastised by just reading your book. Oh, please but, don't, um, dear God. <laughs> but, but no, but I, but I love how vocal you've been about how it's become kind of acceptable to be snobby about magical realism. I, was, I still remember you tweeting. I hope you don't mind me quoting a tweet oh, of yours. Mm. You said, "Explain to me why it's become acceptable to shit on magic realism, the literature of POC, subversive at best." whimsy at worst. Mm -hmm. Why do you think people are so dismissive of the genre? And I wonder if you think there is an element of racism. Okay, so I tell you a story, because sometimes that's just the best way I can <laughs> think about things. I remember doing this, I had not been in Jamaica for a long time. And then I went back again. And one of our public figures, a wonderful academic and dancer called Rex Nettleford had died recently, and the entire nation was in mourning, big festivals to think of him and in his honour. And one of the things that was set up to honour him was what's called a kumana ceremony. And there are quite complex uh, religions, um, hybrid religions in across the Caribbean that are left over from slavery days and often the combination of original uh, African religions combined with often Catholicism. Kumana is a process in which we send the ancestors home and so there was a kumana circle, which involves drumming and very particular kind of music to celebrate the life of, of this dancer, this academic who is a complex man. And one of our friends, who is also a dancer, a professional dancer, got pulled into the kumana circle. So imagine a whole circle of, of humans drumming and singing, and she got pulled into, into the middle of the circle where people dance. And the idea is that the, the spirits ride you and that they must be given quite a lot of love and understanding to ready them to leave this place and go off back to Africa. And that the process of the drumming and the music and, and many 
you know, details about it that I don't understand and wouldn't pretend to will allow for that, that passage. And our friend got pulled into the circle and she went into a trance. And there were friends there who weren't Jamaican and there were friends that were Jamaican. And watching her dance in a trance was very frightening to some of us. Things went on and she danced for hours and everybody began to tire. The professionals there who were the drummers and who were the spiritual leaders were tiring. Uh, the leader of the circle called the Queen was very old and she was beginning to tire. And we could not get our friend to stop dancing. And I'm talking about full glazed over expression, right? And of course, some of us were going, we need to take her to a doctor. We need to take her out of the circle. We need to remove her from the situation. And I was like, no, we don't. We need to leave her right there with the people who understand what is happening to her. In that moment, it didn't matter what science thought, and it didn't matter what a secularist approach was. The thing was to be patient and to wait. And eventually, the people who were the professionals in that space got the spirit of Rex off our friend, which is what they said was happening, and they made peace with him, and off he went into the netherworld. Now, for the next couple of days, I could not stop feeling so right. There's no other word to say it. So me, so Jamaican, so African, so woman, so something that was real, while also going, I'm sure there's an explanation, <laughs> right? <laughs> now, what happens, so to answer your question, hopefully, I think what happens in magic realism is there is an absolute power dynamic going on. That which I understood to be real and true and authentic and part of my culture and not something just to be analyzed and poo-pooed, but something that was actually of value in and of itself, happened that evening. That sits next to the secularism, next to the ordinary in magic realism, and the two have a conversation. And that's where the politics happens. That's where we ask ourselves, what is of value? And Agabo Garcia Marquez said this, you know, and he being, you know, of course, the father of magic realism, supposedly, he said he only found his voice when he found the voice of, I think it was his grandmother. And his grandmother would sit down and say, oh, I just, I had coffee with your sister this morning. And the sister was dead. And nobody said, you are mad. Nobody said, you know, our grandmother is getting, you know, doolally. They just accepted that she'd had coffee with her sister that morning. There is a way of thinking that is is a value too. And yes, let's say, while I'm not going to go to racism, what I'll go to is condescending as fuck. Stop it. <laughs> you don't understand what you're talking about. And in the same way, the people outside of that Kumina circle were going, we must, we must apply logic. I'm going, no, there is a logic here already. Be still and let people work. And what happens to me as a writer and as a you know modern woman, as a modern Jamaican, as a woman who appreciates Kumana, uh, how wonderful to create a space and to be given a space in order to explore all of those ideas. And those who don't understand, buck the fuck off. You don't know what you're talking about. The idea that this is not powerful and important and relevant to literature is astoundingly arrogant. That also makes me think about how you've been speaking about your writing process to this point. 
because we talked to so many different kinds of writers on the show mm. and some have such a kind of top-down intellectual approach to what they're doing you know it's which is not to say your writing is an intellectual but I think a lot of authors kind of come to a book with an idea of something that they want to express and find a kind of narrative shape for it oh I did but that with the you, first two books absolutely <laughs> did that with the first two books yeah but hearing you talk about how you wrote this book it seems like the opposite it, it seems like you found the story and then sort of mapped the ideas onto it. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit more just about the process, because I'm fascinated that it took you 15 years. I so struggle talking about this because on one level, right? I don't know. <laughs> because Listen, 15 years is a long time, right? Think about this. I went through my 30s with this book, my 40s with this book, and I'm now 51. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's okay. a solid relationship. Yeah, it's just like, what the hell, right? Uh, that's longer than any relationship I've ever had, unless we're talking about friends. Um, okay. But this, obviously, yes, it didn't just come out of my backside, obviously not. There was, you know, of course there is craft and, you know, and of course I am concerned with craft and structure and form and limits and constraints and, and, um, and, and excellence. Sure. I do think it got to 400, 500,000 words, but this was just me letting stuff out because this was a construct of me feeling so stuck and so frozen. And so I, I took some time off work at the time. And I, when, it, when I first started conceiving of this, I had Xavier in my head because I start with character. I start with the hearts of people. And so I knew I had this man. I knew he was addicted. I came up with the moths because, as I said, it amused me. But I knew he was, and I knew he was in a bad marriage. More than that, I wasn't sure where he was going or what the purpose of this was. And so I wrote a lot about him. And I wrote a lot about his background. And then I got to know all the characters. At some point, there were probably as many as 60 characters that were point of view characters in this book. And even as this kind of became this huge mountain of madness, I thought, this isn't working. <laughs> I said, no idea what to do. But I kind of just kept going and getting to know them and writing their backstories. I still now have only read the present version of this novel about three times. There are other versions of this novel I've read many more times. Sometimes I forget that certain scenes haven't made it into the final cut because I've still got them, right? And I still remember them. But what therefore happened, I think, as a result of this is that I came up with this incredibly rich sense of this space and this time and these people and this world. And I tell you what the key was, because I knew I needed a constraint and I knew I needed to stop this naughtiness. Like, right, OK, how can I control this? And the answer was one day. It's across one day mm. and it's a love story. And maybe this is the day that two people who should have been together, because really that's what it's about. It's about the one that got away and come now. We all know we all have one that got away, whether it was bad timing or you met them at the, you know, when someone was coupled up or whatever, we all kind of have that sense. So it was these two people. And I thought this is the day that they find out the final thing that they needed to find out about themselves in order to be together. So it's that one day under this one sky. And then I began to throw bits away that didn't allow me to tell that story and the stories that were coming out of that concern. I did a lot of, I think otherwise, a lot of sentence work. I'm obsessed with sentences. I loved your interview um, with Ellie Williams talking about words and sentences. 
I just crafted and recrafted and crafted and recrafted the sentences like a crazy person until they sounded right. And somehow we have what we have. And I hate speaking about it this way because I spend my entire life teaching students about craft and expecting them to speak in, you know, be much more articulate than I'm being now about this process. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Let's talk about the concept of Messinus, which I loved. Mm. Um, Xavier is kind of the, the person in his generation who has been given the gift to cook anyone their perfect meal. And this is sort of a gift revered above all others. He's, he's basically a celebrity yes. on the archipelago. Totally, yes. And I loved I loved that. And at one point you have a discussion between Xavier and the woman who was his predecessor. And he asks her kind of, why is it food? Why does the ultimate pleasure come in the form of food? And she says, nothing is as basic as food, which I loved. And I wonder, do you agree with her? Why did you want to make food the source of of this ultimate gift in in this world i think xavier probably actually now that i think about it started off with me being actually intrigued with the nature of fame so at one point he was a photographer this is years ago at another point um i think he was a painter and then i thought frankly i don't know enough about it and i didn't want to do the research i thought well is there something i can bullshit I'm an okay cook. I'm not great. I'm I'm good. I'm one of those cooks that kind of does the thing that you can do, the six dishes that you can do really well, and then your you know your friends and family come over for those things. But I thought actually, I also began to think that in my own healing process, I've been through a lot of therapy with my eating disorder. I thought let's do food, let's be brave, let's mm-hmm. make something beautiful out of food, because. And also let me depart from Xavier because a lot of the characters are a bit like me in that kind of way that we include ourselves in characterization. Xavier's comfort with food, his ease with it, his sensuality with it, his interest in nourishing people. I began to get fascinated with the psychology of chefs. I did a lot of reading of biographies and autobiographies of chefs and people, you know, critics, food critics talking about food and what joy, you know. What joy they find mm. in this food and how they are artists. Ah, oh, they're beautiful. And, and I began to relate to that, even though food has been complex and unhappy and an enemy for me for most of my life, I could relate one artist to another. I could relate to Xavier's need also to nurture people. And somehow it came from there. Then it was just a matter of how many different ways can I find to come up with food things all the way through this book. Mm. Um, I watch so many cooking shows. I'm now left with the complete habit of watching cooking shows all the time and always looking for juxtaposition. I'm obsessed with contrasts, you know, light and heat, textures, you know, color, motion. Interestingly, I don't know what Xavier would feed me. Well, that was going to be one of our questions. What would your meal be? And it feels even more pertinent now knowing of your troubled relationship with food, you know? Let me tell you, I think Xavier knows this, and I'm going to say it now, share something with you. I haven't really said to people out loud, and it's going to make me sound mad, but you know, authors are odd anyway. So during lockdown, I needed my teeth done. I had a, I bounced a tooth and I needed, I had a chip in it, so I needed it dealt with. So I managed to inveigle my dentist to see me. And I don't like dentists very much, as most people do. I mean, bless them, dentists, fine. But, you know, dentist process, not good. So I began to do some meditation on the, you know, as I, sat back you know they just just calmed down and Xavier came to talk to me and it really was like having a hallucination and we both sat on the beach 
as I'm kind of trying to breathe through the process as she's cleaning and so on. And he held my hand and he said, you know, everything's going to be all right. right? Everything's going to be cool. The book's going to be cool. We are all right. All of us in this book, we are fine on Poppy Show. We're good. And I said, you've never fed me. And he said, yes, I have. Yes, I have. It's not food. It's the process of working my way through a huge amount of shame and complexity all the way back to this book, finally finishing it, publishing it, now facing the publication of it and all that implies. And yes, there are all kinds of ways to nourish a body. And so he gave me that. I think that's a wonderful place to end, Leonie Ross. Um, <laughs> with Xavier in our presence right now. Yes. Thank you so He's much for coming. <laughs> he is lovely. He is wonderful. <laughs> I fell in love with him reading this novel. I think that's always a really good sign. Oh, I'm so um, glad. I thought he was a depressed fucker at a point. I thought, no, everyone's going to hate him and think he's moany, but actually he's not. He just thinks no, I too loved hard. Him. Yeah, he's got the biggest him. heart. The biggest, biggest heart. <laughs> biggest heart. Thank you so much for coming You're on really Literary welcome. Friction today. It's been such a treat. <laughs> Thanks. This episode is sponsored by Picador. We've spoken before about how, depending on what kind of reader you are or what's going on in your life, there might be times when you're looking for tricksy use of language and cold, biting wit in a book. And there are other times when you're looking for a deep emotional connection to a story and its characters. Shuggy Bane by Douglas Stewart, the winner of the Booker Prize for Fiction 2020, is definitely a novel to turn to when you're looking for that unforgettable emotional experience. Shuggy Bain tells the story of a young boy's childhood in 1980s Glasgow and his love and care for his beautiful but troubled mother who is struggling with addiction. It has been described as a counterpart to Alan Hollinghurst's The Line of Beauty. Like The Line of Beauty, it is a story about family, coming of age, and sexuality in Thatcher's post-industrial Britain, but with Shuggy Bain set in the recession-hit communities of Glasgow rather than the moneyed world of 1980s London. It has also been compared to the work of Edouard Louis, D.H. Lawrence, James Joyce, and Hanya Yanagihara. And as with Yanagihara's A Little Life, readers have taken this deeply moving story to their hearts. The Times described it as one of the most affecting novels ever written. The Times Literary Supplement described it as heartbreaking in its tenderness, and The Observer have called it a novel of rare and lasting beauty. If you're looking for a book that will move you profoundly, but that is suffused with empathy, warmth, love and hope, things we could definitely do with right now, then look no further than Shuggy Bane by Douglas Stewart. Shuggy Bane is out in paperback right now, and you can buy it from your local bookshop. Yes, you can. And this is a book I haven't read yet, but I really, truly, genuinely want to read and it is on my pile. And yes, I'm excited about this Yeah, one. same here. Me too. All right, we're back here to talk about the genre of magical realism. Quite a small and confined topic for us today, once again. <laughs> but I think we, we just want to get into it, don't we? But first, I think we do unfortunately have to discuss what magical realism is. I don't want to dwell on this for too long because as I have learned from researching this, the definition of what magical realism is is very contested and flexible. 
And once again, I think the something we've returned to is you can only learn so much from the idea of genre because as soon as you start looking into it, it kind of falls apart in your hands, doesn't it? Absolutely. Um, but I did love Leonie's definition, actually, that she gave of, you know, literature in which the fabulous or fantastical is taken at face value. Yeah, definitely. But when other people have tried to describe it, they've talked about it as some mix of realism and the magical. So not fully magical, like in a fantasy world, for instance. It does overlap with some other genres, fantasy, surrealism, sci-fi. And, you know, it is in some ways associated with a very specific movement in Latin America and the Caribbean. And, you know, authors like Marquez and Allende, for instance, are really very clearly magical realists, I think. And we can get a little bit into that. But I think for this podcast episode, we'll just have to go with the Supreme Court's definition of pornography. We know it when we see it. How do you feel about that? <laughs> yeah, I like it. I like it. <laughs> I know it when I see it. Yeah. Pornography and magical realism. Good, good, good. Okay. So my favorite is that... magical realist pornography. <laughs> <laughs> what do you love about magical realism Octavia I know you're you're a big fan of this genre I am a huge fan of magical realism I, I love how playful it is and I, I love that because it has this expansive capacity it takes real pleasure in storytelling I find that uh, that element of it really electric I mean I came I came to it because I studied Spanish and so I was reading in Spanish the kind of great magical realist writers of Latin America when I was at school and it totally shaped the way I responded to literature and what I came to expect from literature. And it took me a lot longer to come to realism and to really appreciate realism. So for me, like the debate about whether magical realism is like um, high literature or interesting or anything like that is baffling because it's a bit like, what is literature without magical realism? I don't understand <laughs> because of the way around I came to it. Because the thing I love about it is that there's, so many different versions of it. So, you know, you mentioned Marquez and Allende, Julio Cortázar, Jorge Luis Borges, like all these writers have such a different way into this kind of um, murky territory, I guess. And they can take you in so many different directions with the way that they write. Um, that the, the possibilities are limitless. And when you're reading this kind of writing, but you're in the hands of a really expert practitioner, you can just let them take you anywhere. And it you get this absolutely wonderful feeling of of suspending your disbelief, truly. You know what I mean? I think it can help you, it can help you reach outer limits of your own imagination, which I find really, really electrifying. Yeah, I I mean, when I have enjoyed magical realism, it definitely is that expansiveness. And you're right that it can take so many different forms and styles, but it always expands the limits of, of what is possible and really tickles the imagination while still being able to focus on the things that I often love about literature, like, you know, human stories and characters and you know, telling a story rather than necessarily building a world. Um, yeah. And and I think that's that's really wonderful. I also think by tradition, and I don't know if this is um, is also something that is inherent to the genre. It's it can be very subversive and it can be very political, um, and and we got into that a little bit with Leonie. But do you th do you think it's inherently political or subversive as a genre? Yes, I think so because of the way it sits in opposition to realism, and because realism has quite uh, stringent parameters around it, right? And I don't want to 
shit all over realism because I love some realist literature. But I think that magical realism by definition exists outside of the margins. And when you stop to think about which perspectives have traditionally dominated the realist perspective, which voices have traditionally told us what is real and which minutiae are worthy of our attention, because obviously the parameters of realist literature is the replication of the world as we know it. Magical realism subverts that traditional power structure just simply by deviating from that, let alone where it might take you next. Yeah, I think that's so true. I mean, I don't hmm, I don't know if it all... There are plenty of people who would argue that all literature is political. So I think you could you can take that perspective. I, I would say there probably is some magical realism that isn't focused on being political or subversive, but plenty of it is. And I think that's partially because it's a very neat way to examine society in a new way. I think this One Sky Day is actually a great example of that, kind of using magic to to think about ways in which we organize our societies and addiction and, um, you know, politics and, and how people are selected to lead and how people do lead. Um, and the book makes us see the things that we know about our society in a, a completely different way. I was also thinking of a book that I read this year, Beloved, which I think uses kind of magical realism very, very effectively to think about trauma and slavery. Yeah. Or you have something like, you know, The Master of Margarita by Mikhail Bulgakov, which I bang on about all the time. But that's doing something slightly different. It's using the language of magical realism to bring the absurd right into the middle of everything. Mm. And it's a deeply political book, very directly political. And it uses kind of allegories, biblical allegories, as well as like the devil as a figure. Um, But really it's playing with the absurd and in so doing, it's flipping the kind of established realist narrative which was all that was going on at that time in Russian literature as far as I understand it uh, on its head and it's it's electrifyingly um, subversive to do that I think totally and very playful at the same time yeah yeah totally which is wonderful so why do you think people are so snobby about magical realism I mean it it, it comes back to what you have to say about what has been considered kind of more serious literature in the western canon and the project of realism, which has been so bound up with the project of the novel for so long. Yeah. And as I said, I've professed an allergy to magical realism. Um, it's been interesting because in researching this show, I thought about all of the magical realist books that I really loved reading. And I think part of that allergy has to do with reading books on submission as a literary agent, which try to do magical realism. And don't do it very well and oh, become <laughs> become either just totally untethered from story or are like annoyingly whimsical. Mm. Um, and I really don't have patience for that. And also I just, I do love realism. I will admit I, I'm a, I'm a realism gal. You are. It's true. I mean, I have a lot of thoughts about this, so I feel like <laughs> you could like wind me up and let me go. But basically I think it's to do with people being very, very afraid of themselves and of what they might discover. So if you think again about realist literature being the representation of the familiar, then 
when you're reading a realist novel, you you you're likely to be like deeply moved and to be intellectually stimulated, but you're still going to be in terrain that you recognize. And you don't have to take a crazy leap of faith in the same way that you do in a magically realist kind of world. And I think that the other thing that magical realism really suffers from is this perception that it's babyish because it's fantastical. And I think people are deeply neurotic about liking so-called babyish things. Um, and I've done a lot of thinking about this. And my theory is that's also partly because things we consider babyish are often actually rooted in pleasure. And I think intellectual people have a deep fear of pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> and in magical realism, often in the, in this kind of loose genre, the magic is quite benign. It's kind of primarily there to induce wonder, to ask questions like what if and and yes, you know, it's a bit uh like the improv comedy. Improv comedy. Well yeah, like the school <laughs> Which of people improvisation. also are very snobby about. Right, exactly. I mean I think rightly so, but that's a different <laughs> <laughs> But no, but 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 essentially the thing that magical realism asks you to do is just jump off the cliff with the writer and trust them and let yourself experience new things. And you might find things that really frighten you, it might make you very uncomfortable. So I think that people are afraid to take that leap. I think people are afraid that they will be considered unserious if they go there. And it suffers from this contempt prior to investigation thing. And that's a huge shame because truly my belief about reading is if you can read as widely and with as little prejudice as possible, then that's a very good aim as a reader. If you want to be a good reader and you want to be good giving in game, as Dan Savage would say, <laughs> mm-hmm. I think that if you can jump into any book, knowing that if it if it doesn't hold your attention, you're fine to quit. Like no one's going to hold you to, to finishing it. But you never know what you might find about yourself. You never know what you might find out about the world in general if you just give it a go. I also think that, you know, what you say about magical realism works not being considered serious it, again it's such a false understanding because you could never accuse a writer like Borges or Toni Morrison of not being a serious writer so I wonder do you know what I mean I wonder where that's really coming from yeah I think that's an amazing point actually and I hadn't really thought about it in that way and it it's true that people do draw this line with magical things or things having to do with the imagination as that belonging to the realm of childhood and fantasy right. and growing up is, is partially discarding those things. Um, and so realism is somehow a more intellectual adult pursuit, which is a total false dichotomy. And, but I see it persist in British publishing, at least. I mean, yeah, we're talking from our experience in the UK with yeah, yeah, English language time. literature. What's wonderful is that's, doesn't seem to be the case in a lot of other cultures. Yeah, I hope not. It's very disappointing. But English people are uptight, aren't they? <laughs> well, I wouldn't. I, I have no comment on that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the one who is the one who needs to be more vulnerable. Yeah, you so, need to let loose you know, a little bit more. And I'm the true. American. I'm just going to buy you magical realist books for your birthday every year until the end of time now. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> what? magical realist book would you like to recommend to our listeners oh my god I, I found it very very hard to choose so I've gone with the book of short stories basically mainly because I any of our listeners who are 
um, uncertain of magical realism, this is a great way to dip your toe in because you can just have a, a go with a short story at a time. And these ones are by a true, true master. So the book is called Fictions by Jorge Luis Borges or Ficciones if you read Spanish. The Penguin edition is translated by Andrew Hurley and it's about 17 stories and they are just the most extraordinary feat of the imagination. And it's amazing that you get to experience Borges in so many different ways and guises. There's stories like Funes el Memorioso, Funes the Memorious, about a man who can forget nothing. Others are about the conjuring power of language or taking like the real magic of something like a library, which if you stop to think about it is extraordinary and extending it to its most extra iteration in a story called The Library of Babel, which imagines a library that contains every possible book in the whole universe. Mm. <laughs> and it's just... They're extraordinary. They're really, really extraordinary stories and and ones that I go back to frequently and I, I love very much. Yeah, I, I read those in college and, um, you know, mind blown emoji. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think Borges would, would approve of that <laughs> review? I actually think he would be into the like cross textual thing that's going on there. I think he'd be into the idea of you using like verbalizing the picture of the hieroglyph that has come to mean something you know what I cool. mean yeah yeah thanks <laughs> <laughs> what's yours well for me it has to be 100 years of solitude oh, by yeah. Gabriel Garcia Marquez which I know is the like ur text of all magical realism and our listeners have probably all read already but if they haven't please just go out and read 100 Years of Solitude, even like me, you are skeptical about magical realism. I read it in one hungry gulp um, when I was younger. It blew me away. It extended the possibilities of what I knew fiction to be capable of. And it is so full of delight and sadness and emotion and sensuousness. And it's a brilliant book. But um, for a more recent recommendation, and not the most obvious one possible, I really enjoyed Homegoing by Yagi Yasi, which tells the stories of characters from multiple generations of one family. I think that it's two siblings, one of whom is sold into slavery and one who remains um, on the African continent and sort of how their stories unfold. And there, there is magic seated throughout linking them and the narrative together. And it's a really satisfying read. I loved it. Oh, I heard a lot of great things about that one. It sounds fantastic. It is. It's great. All right. We are back here with Leonie Ross to give our book recommendations. So, Octavia, would you like to start? I would love to. Thanks, Carrie. Uh, my recommendation is a book called Everybody, a book about freedom by Olivia Lang, which isn't actually out yet, but it's going to hit bookshops at the end of the month. And it's just a very great read. It's full of fascinating insights. And I love the way that she weaves these elements of biography and criticism with snippets of memoir in her books. And I feel like it's a form that she's so proficient in and she's just getting better and better and better at it. And this one is, as the title suggests, about bodies. It's about freedom. And it feels very necessary right now. And I think, you know, a lot of the time when writers start writing a book, they have no idea what the world will be like when it emerges. And this one she was working on for quite a long time, and it feels like it's landed at the right time. She structures the investigation around this intriguing and sometimes pretty troubling psychotherapist called Wilhelm Reich, who trained under Freud, but he evolved Freud's psychoanalysis from this very static practice 
to one that involved physical touch as well as talking. And he believed that the body held its traumas and that the way to release its traumas was actually most famously his thesis was that you have to have plenty of orgasms in order to release all of this trauma from your body and that sexual frigidity as he would put it is something that blocks that anyway she she goes through these ideas of his also some of his more troubling ideas and she also uses these concepts to investigate different people and different artists and writers and thinkers who've played with the ideas of bodily shutdown and bodily liberation and these include like Susan Sontag, Kathy Acker, Nina Simone is in there, Malcolm X. There's a bit of a history of protest movements. And then also her own experience as a herbalist, which she stopped doing when she was in her early 30s, I think. But it's just, it's very wide ranging and very rich. And she manages to hold it all together, which makes it quite an exhilarating read. Um, And I just think, yeah, it's a great one. It's a great one for now. Sounds excellent. Leonie, what is your recommendation? Well, mine feels like a highly self-indulgent recommendation it is Niven Govindan's Diary of a Film which of course I know you've done a um, a program with Niven and I think he's an astonishing writer and I've enjoyed his work for a long time but Diary of a Film in particular feels to me like this is the maestro now stepping forward he is so sure so as as some of you readers may know it is this kind of beautifully restrained examination of the artistic process. And it's written from the point of view of a maestro filmmaker who's releasing his latest film. And we meet him when he's about to do this. And he's he's experiencing all of these personal feelings as an artist, you know, the, the complexity of letting go of a work, worrying about how it might be received, uh, disentangling himself from the intimacy of, of, um, of the set, you know, that he's made all of these relationships, particularly with these two young actors. He's obviously a very intense man who gets deeply into his work. And so he's had to kind of extricate himself from them and return home to his, to his husband and his child. I began to cry almost immediately when I began to read this book. And this is where the self-indulgence comes in, because it is that liminal space of being just about to let your baby, your work, into the world. And it's <laughs> Niven says so many for, for authors and for creatives, so many teeth clenchingly <laughs> vulnerable things about how you feel when you're about to do that and how you can protect yourself and what it means. And also what it means is this work of art also begins to move away from you. And the maestro, the, the filmmaker in this meets a, a woman who has written several works and he becomes really concerned with adapting one of her novels. And it's also uh, the story of how they negotiate that, that impulse in him, you know, who art belongs to, what it is to take someone else's art or to be given their art, and, and what it is to be a creative person. And he manages to do this in this astonishingly clean way. It's like I can imagine Niven sitting there again, tinkering at his sentences and making sure that every single word is in place. All of of his intentions are clear. I envy the hell out of him for his clarity. Yeah, it was it, so. It was also pleasurable there because there are all these layers. There's the layers of taking on, of course, the plot and the characters within the book, but also feeling in a really positive way that the power of the author behind it, almost showing off, but not being showy at all. It was a, a joy to read and so tender. I loved it. We did too. We both loved that mm. novel. And I think you're so right. It's so controlled in the best possible way. Yeah. I think that's also our job. 
you know, I don't know whether Niven was frightened or blocked or scared or unsure or any of those things. And I imagine he was, but none of that shows on the page. All mm. goes to the craft, all goes to story, all goes to character. So I am going to recommend Clara and the Sun, the new novel by Kazuo Ishiguro. This is a beautiful novel, which explores, as his fiction so often does, the human condition by looking at the not quite human or the forgotten. But in the case of this novel, this is done even more obviously than in the past because it is narrated by um, a robot, basically. It is an intelligent robot um, named Clara, who her whole purpose is to act as a friend to a child. And this is happening sometime in the future. And it's an incredibly simple story. It's told incredibly simply, um, which I think really fits with this idea of, of the narrative voice of a robot. But there is just so much brewing beneath the surface of this novel. And, that, and that's really its power, the full emotional impact, which unfolds very slowly but surely over the course of the novel was almost too much to bear. I mean, it was kind of heart-rending um, and not in the way that you expect it might be either. So, so we were talking a little bit about worlds building with you, Leonie, and um, I was thinking about these two novels in conversation with each other because I think that it's such a skill to be able to build a world while giving enough information so that the reader isn't disoriented, but holding enough back that they're curious to learn more about what's going on. And I think he's so good at that. And I think that's something you're really good at too. And I, I just really noticed that in this novel, not so much that it took me out of the story, but how good he is at keeping you there and feeding you drips of information that, <laughs> that keep you grasping for more as well. Sounds absolutely amazing. I don't know about Ishiguro's approach to world building, but the key for me has always been to actually, in a little bit of me, believe it myself. Yeah. yeah. Somewhere there is poppy shop. Somewhere Xavier Redshoes is fooling around with some food, you know? So that's how you make it real. You kind of half believe it yourself. That is all the time we have for today. Thanks to Leonie Ross and to Eddie Knight for editing and music. Literary Friction is available as a podcast to download on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and to stream on ncs.live. You can check us out on Twitter and Instagram. You can also get in touch on email, litfriction at gmail.com. If you have a spare minute, please do rate and review us on iTunes. It makes a huge difference and it helps us reach more listeners. We'll be back soon with another mini-sode. Until then, I'm Carrie Plitt with Octavia Bright, and this is Literary Friction. <laughs>